How can the arts help cultivate our intuitive intelligence? What does visual art teach us about consciousness and the human condition? Jonathan Yeo is one of the world's leading figurative artists and portrait painters. From celebrated figures such as Sir David Attenborough, peace activist Malala Yousafzai, Nicole Kidman, and Tony Blair, sitting for a portrait with Yeo is a provisional necessity for any 21st century icon. His work, which has been exhibited in museums and galleries around the world, is a subject of several major mid-career retrospectives in the UK and internationally. Yeo's course on portrait painting is available now on BBC Maestro. Jonathan Yeo, welcome to The Creative Process. Hi there. Thank you for inviting me. So we've really been enjoying your BBC Maestro course, which helps break down the painting process. I think not just for visual artists, but, you know, anyone curious about their own creative practice or wanting to know how to observe and connect with people, especially when we're bombarded by so many surface images and living through screens. I think these courses are refreshing and it helps us understand not just the art techniques, but, you know, how we can all slow down and appreciate what's going on beneath the surface. Each section of the course feels like a lesson in empathic imagination. Although that's very good to hear. It's still quite new. It's a funny thing to try and condense, you know, 30 years of doing something into a few hours. Obviously, it's much better than trying to squeeze it into a 25 or 45 minute TV show, which is usually what it is, which obviously leaves almost everything out. But trying to sort of sift through and figure out what you can distill from your kind of experience and also what's most relevant really for people at different stages. I feel like you know, there's hopefully there's stuff there for people who are starting off, people who've been doing it for a while, but also people who are just curious. You know, I think probably more than we set out to do. I think that we ended up covering quite a lot of the chat around the psychology involved and the kind of the, the thought processes and the way you set things up and the stories you're trying to tell as much as the actual mechanics of how you paint, which I've always felt a little bit self-conscious about, you know, pretending to be an authority on as I never, I never was properly trained. I didn't go to art school. I didn't have formal art training other than doing it at school and doing life classes. And so I've always felt I've been learning on the job myself. And therefore, it's a funny thing to be doing this unexpectedly complicated but interesting exercise. Of course, because it's not the mechanics. And so much of what happens, I imagine the best strokes or the, the moments where you're coming close to the end of the momentum of the painting or the sculpture is coming together. You're almost, I don't want to say sleepwalking, but it becomes not automatic, but it's just so natural. How do you explain that? It's interesting, isn't it? And I think I certainly feel that there's a lot of aspects to it which are not even specific to portraiting or painting at all, but a kind of pretty inevitable parts of any creative process that you have this sort of burst of energy you know, at the start, once you decided what you want to try and do. I mean, some people are very good at you know, knowing exactly what they're going to do and what it's going to look like. And it ends up like that. I'm not one of those. I find that I have a vague idea. And especially if it's a portrait of someone else, it's going to shift a bit according to how the relationship develops, you know, because a portrait is a sort of little document of a relationship between an artist and a subject. And the way those personalities interact and what comes out during the sessions informs the end result, I find. And so you have an idea of where it's going to end up. And in my case, I have kind of various sort of stylistic quirks, which um, mean that, you know, I, sometimes I leave a lot out or make suggested or do it in different parts and different styles, which 
again, it's something which is a little bit organic. I don't necessarily know at the start quite what form that's going to take. But as you say, then there are other things that happen along the way. You have crises. Certainly if it's a good picture, you've usually been through a few sort of crises of confidence or changing your mind or wondering if you've done it or kind of gone off in the wrong direction and then trying to finish something off. And I always find it can be very hard to know when to stop a work because I think just from experience, sometimes, and especially these days, now that we take pictures with our phones along the way, you know, I hate that thing where you look back and realize you liked a picture better a week before you finished it, before you'd overworked it and things like that. So I think a lot of this is true of all kinds of creative pursuits, this idea of how to be your own editor as well as the creator and whether you're even the best person to judge the success of something or not. But I find that sometimes an effective thing is when you're working, as I tend to do on multiple pictures at once, I tend to have two or three at different stages. It's a party because you get very used to whichever one you're working on. If you work on something, you know, for several days in a row and one of the challenges, I think, is that you start getting very used to it. And so actually that thing you have with fresh eyes where you can see what, what's unbalanced or what mistakes you've made, you start to lose that when you've been literally staring at the same thing, watching paint dry for days on end. And so I think to force yourself to put it out of view for a day or a week or whatever it is can be a very powerful way of solving problems because you can surprise yourself with something which you were over familiar with before. Yes, it's just the process of making the, I don't like to say subject, but making it more itself. You know, you've painted some extraordinary people in your 30 years as a portrait painter. The actor Giancarlo Esposito is featured in the course, but just to mention some others, Cara Della Vigna, David Attenborough, Dennis Hopper, Prince Philip, Idris Alba, politicians. I want to go into some of these magnificent portraits, but you mentioned back there, you leave some things out. And when I look at these works, it seems like you paint a pure relationship with the subject. Often, you know, there's no distraction and sometimes some little things, but no background objects and not like a window or a mirror or a vase, nothing for them to hide behind. So I think it must take a lot of confidence to create that intimacy that allows the viewer to have the same one-on-one -on -one engagement with the subject. Yes, that's an interesting point. And that's something which I'd, you know, I hadn't really analyzed much before doing this series, actually, is that that is such an important part of it. And it, like a lot of things I do, it wasn't something I said, you know, figured it out and decided to do it. Something that's happened by accident. You know, I find that a lot of the process, what are you trying to do with a portrait? On a basic level, you're trying to communicate something about the essence of who someone is. So you're trying to kind of figure out who they are, not necessarily who they present themselves as, because the two things can you know, quite often be different. And then try and find ways of showing that through their face, their posture, any other context. And, you know, I, I don't sort of deliberately leave out everything. If there's something useful in what they're wearing or an object or a setting, then it makes more sense to have in there or makes the story more interesting or relevant, then great. But you're right. I try to avoid having distractions because my instinct is always to sort of reduce down to the essential elements. And we read faces, you know, it's obviously very, very deep in our DNA, probably our survival instinct, that we are programmed to read faces in a very fine-tuned way. You pick up in a split second so much information about somebody. Obviously, their age, their sex, their sort of, you know, their mood, their intent, what maybe is about to happen next from just from their appearance. And, you know, that whole body language is important in that, but 
in faces, we really read micro expressions and the, particularly in the eyes and mouth in, in order to sort of unpick those things and predict you know, what's going to happen next in the conversation or in the relationship with someone you don't know, you know, to try and anticipate whether something might be a threat or might be useful or might be a welcome or unwelcome thing. So deep in us is this expectation that we are going to pick up all this information from the clues people are giving visually. And a lot of that comes from faces. So then when photography came along, before photography, obviously painting was the only way of recording what someone looked like. Obviously with photography, you suddenly had something which was literally capturing a split second and whatever was there. For many years, there was a false certainty of photography. That thing I grew up with, the sort of phrase, the camera never lies, which you don't hear so much these days with everything from Photoshop to AI and all filters and all the ways you can distort photos. But certainly in, in the past, there was an assumption that, that it was documentary evidence of what was going on. But we can all look different and project different things. And yeah, sometimes we've slept better or we're ill or just stopped step of a plane or have made an effort with our appearance. There's so many things that can you know, skew things one way or another. And I feel like a snapshot, occasionally a photo does capture a lot of someone's personality but very often it's just one aspect of it. And therefore, also the first time I find people come and sit for me, they're often quite you know, self-conscious as you would be, you know, coming in to be scrutinized. And it's only after the sort of second or third time someone sits for you that you finally see them relax into it. And so what you were trying to accelerate that point at which they're sort of relaxed and no longer wearing a mask or just being uncomfortable because they're in an unfamiliar environment. The artist studio with the funny sort of smells and sights, and it's all very unfamiliar, and they're conscious of being scrutinized. And so I think that is something which I, I feel like sort of accidentally over the years, I've kind of developed ways of putting people at their ease. And some of it's about distraction, some of it's about instigating conversations and also getting people to talk about themselves, which tends to sort of be awkward on the first session. And then by the sort of third or fourth, they're treating it like therapy, which is also very helpful because, you know, sometimes the things people say inform the direction of, of a painting as well. So it's not to say you get it every time that you get people to drop their masks. Some people are particularly politicians or actors or even just you know, anyone who's in any way a professional performer can take longer to get through to. And sometimes you don't know if you ever really got them. I think actors are particularly sort of interesting paradox from an artist's point of view that I think we touch on it in the series. All the signs you're looking for, the clues about someone's identity and mood and character are things that they professionally distort. You know, that's how they make a living. And so the better they are at acting, you know, the chances are the more interesting they are as a subject. But at the same time, the harder in theory they are because they're going to be better at deceiving you with the same visual, you know, nonverbal communication. But yeah, that's the idea that you're trying to allow people the space to sort of be themselves at least some of the time. And then your job as the artist is really to sort of like, to, well, I can take that element, that bit from that expression, the way they were sat on that day and do a kind of composite image based on lots of different clues. Yes. And speaking of those actors, I mean, one of my favorite paintings by you is the Dennis Hopper one when he's looking off. I think you actually done him more than once. You have that mid expression. I, I know that they're expert at wearing many masks, but you capture the humor, which I think is really hard, kind of no nonsense quality and compassion all in one image. And I feel like I can hear his voice as I look at that painting. I feel like he's about to say something. Oh, thank you. Yes, that's nice to hear. Yes. I mean, that was a lovely one for me because that was about 20 years ago. So I was still kind of you know, fairly new to it. And he was a big figure. He was obviously a kind of famous Hollywood actor, but also was famously, you know, 
a great photographer and sometime artist himself and influential kind of collector. He was like the early champion of Warhol and people like that. So whenever you get people who you feel know a lot about it, it's exciting and a bit intimidating at the same time, but he's lovely. I think that was one of the sort of early experiences of having someone who, you know, we don't know first if they're putting on a performance for you or if it's actually them. It turned out it was actually him, but he had this slightly sort of old cowboy manner and intensity with humor as well, as you say. And that one, I was my kind of first go at it, just doing, I think even the first day he came to sit for me really fast. And then I sort of wasn't sure whether that was just, you know, I only sort of caught the surface of it. So I did some more versions, but I don't think any of the other ones were any better than that first one. It can sometimes be the case that your first impression actually is the right one. But other times, definitely your first impression turns out to be just something they were projecting on the first day rather than what you learn later on, which tends to be more nuanced. And another one, just to speak to some that speak to me personally, when you enthroned Damien Hurst in his chemical suit against, mm. again, captured for me the, the humor and the full character and the confidence coming through. Yes, it's always interesting painting other artists. Yeah, for the same reason with Damien Sopper, that, you know, you feel that they are sort of a bit more on your side of the camera and have a more of an understanding of the process, or at least a lot more you know, kind of technical interest in it. Obviously, in his case, he's a very different kind of artist. And his best piece is really, I think, of the sculptures and installations. And he has a great sort of knack for of storytelling. So what's nice is I try to sort of allow room for people to suggest things. Doesn't necessarily mean I'll use what they suggest. But I think if you can have that element of collaboration, obviously, on one level, it's a portrait of two artists who are also kind of friends and had a relationship already. But at the same time, it was also a kind of work that sort of bridging this divide between my practice and his. And so it's thinking about how to reference his practice in it. So I said, yeah, how can we reference his early pieces? And obviously he was known for putting animals in formaldehyde and you know, the shark in the tank and that sort of thing. And so he said, well, actually, I've still got, you know, the dry suit that I used to use for making those pieces. And so he was, made a quick phone call and one of his assistants had dropped it around half an hour later. So he put it on. And it, what's lovely with that was, you know, so some people worked out what it was, but it had this slightly sort of sinister air about it. Like it might be some sort of military, paramilitary sort of uniform or chemical warfare outfit. I even put the gas mask on for a while, but obviously that you know, made it a bit complicated to show who it was inside it. And it suddenly gave it a whole other narrative. You can have something just telling multiple stories at once, or at least kind of confusing you a bit at first. So you have to unpick the painting. Yeah, he's a big fan and collector of Francis Bacon. We were kind of also talking about the sort of screaming Pope and that sort of way that you can kind of set up expectation through a pose. And also he was sort of seen by the media as being a bit of a sort of uh, overlord in the kind of contemporary art world, kind of strategizing and working out how to kind of, you know, take millions off collectors. And so to play a bit on that, he's got a fantastic sense of humor, Damien. Yeah, the slight, slight mischief of it and not being a sort of traditional looking portrait, but referencing certain traditional things. The tank part came later because it felt like it needed something else. And then suddenly I had this idea that it's a bit ambiguous whether he's making one of his pieces or if actually he's been put in one, he's been made into one of his own things. And again, you know, the idea of that sort of three-dimensional construction I was alluding to the Francis Bacon who used to do that sometimes as well. The idea was to create a sort of image which would grab your attention in this big show I did, which was done for, and then draw you into his face. But then there was enough space to also have a few other narrative elements, which would hopefully reward people spending a bit longer looking at it. 
Yeah, indeed. And it has that underwater quality that, of course, in the tank and the metaphorical shark. But you also, as I look back to the hallmarks of your style, the light is very interesting. Sometimes it can feel underwater or you have these powdery backgrounds that merge into the face. And for me, almost like a watercolor aura that evokes the passage of time. So, you know, how did you arrive at your style? It's a good question. I think... I mean, the honest answer is it's absolutely accidental. Going back to how I started, because I didn't set out to be a portrait painter, I partly doing that because I was quite good at drawing faces when I was a kid, and it was a way of you know making a living in my twenties, which otherwise I wouldn't be able to do. But I also was sort of like trying to learn from looking at other artists' work. When I go to the galleries and museums, I always find it very interesting seeing unfinished works because it gave you much more information about the artist's process. But I found also that. Very often, there'd be something more intriguing about the unfinished works than the very finished ones that would often result from them. I think years later, I think I realized it was kind of very often coming into my work. I sometimes find that the image of a picture that was half done was somehow more interesting than when I spent a lot more time on it and made it very sort of polished. I think, I mean, having in recent years got more interested in technology and talked to a lot of people about visual technologies and how our eyes and brains work. There's definitely something in the fact that we don't see and certainly don't remember images like a camera does. Yeah, the the democracy of a camera, which takes up in every part of the frame, it it gives it its equal precedence. It's the opposite. We are very selective in what we record or what we absorb. And the face, other human faces are one of the things you absolutely sort of pay attention to. The architecture of the room or the space you're in, you don't need to sort of go into a room and check everything symmetrical and all all the supported pattern recognition kicks in and we accept certain things that we see as being what they are without having to check them out. And I feel like, I guess it's just like trying to represent that thing of how, you know, when you look at someone and then look away, what do you remember of that image? Some people have described them as being like they think of people in dreams rather than, you know, in, in real life. I don't know what it is, but I feel like the, the, the idea of, yeah, the kind of prioritization and not choosing what we absorb, but we're our brain sort of unconsciously doing it for us is really interesting because I think there's an element that we might miss some things, but we certainly pick up the key elements very quickly and write those down and don't necessarily check all the books on the shelf or every leaf on the tree and all that sort of thing. I think this idea of actually sometimes leaving things out and not showing things like a camera shows them seems to strike a chord in a way too much detail actually makes it feel less real, at least to me. Indeed, it's an enigmatic afterburn of memory. I want to go into your engagements with technology, which seem very much about perception and consciousness. And, you know, when some of these works were created, AI was kind of being formulated, but it wasn't really like what it is now in this last year. As I look at sculptures, Revelation of the Head or paintings like The Preserving Machine, are they really maybe reflect on the nature of perception and vision and consciousness. And now as you look at those works, as we enter the age of AI and intelligence distributed across neural networks, I mean, was that intentionally something that you gave consideration to in the process? So the, those works you're talking about, which were things which were derived, I mean, it started off, on that started off by accident. I was looking at some other technologies and I was working with Google on a virtual reality thing. And I was kind of spending a bit of time in California and I was put in touch with the Otoy, which was one of the big Hollywood sort of VFX companies who were kind of like, oh, great, you know, you're the portrait artist. We've got the best machine for scanning heads. You know, come on, have a play with it. And, you know, because they had a, a down day when they weren't doing something for George Lucas or other big budget production. And I hadn't really, obviously, be a painter is a two-dimensional thing. You know, you're basically taking real things, three-dimensional things, and making them into fake two-dimensional ones. And there's that sort of paradox. Yeah, the better the painting, 
the more it's playing this game. But at no point do you forget that it's a two-dimensional painting. Even a really brilliant, convincing, you know, realistic painting of someone, it strikes a chord, but you don't think that's an actual person about to step out of the canvas. You, you know that it's an image of something. But when you get into the 3D space, some of those distinctions aren't there anymore. And I remember when I'm going to show David Hockney the VR project been working on a few years ago, and he put his finger on some of this quite well. Most art you know, is about perspective. Certainly, you know, for kind of what he's interested in. And whether you, you're doing a formal kind of traditional representation of it with, you know, kind of all the vanishing lines, everything, or you're breaking it up like sort of Picasso, what you're still, you're playing along with these rules that you are playing with certain kind of mechanical rules of depicting something in two dimensions. As soon as you're seeing something in 3D, whether it's a physical sculpture or a virtual object, that's not there anymore because you're in the space with the thing, whatever's being shown. And see so you in a very different place. And it opens up so much. I could wang on about this for ages. I do find it a really interesting area. But I think those pictures were played with kind of, kind of me getting my head around suddenly what all these things open up. And then also having some fun with the fact that, you know, sometimes when the technology was imperfect, that the thing might accidentally look like something else. And in the case of some of them, you know, the partial scans would look like it was part of your head had fallen off, like a sort of ancient sculpture that had been damaged over time. And so they need you to depict those as a bit of marble rather than a normal face. They're having some fun at the moment with some scans I did a few years ago, which was using a bit of AI to sort of combine several different kinds of captures like 2D and 3D. But because the technology was very early and I was deliberately doing it a bit wrong, they ended up looking like these gestural 50s to mid-century sort of abstract expressionist paintings. And then I tried to go back to it a couple of years later to do some more and yeah, the software had been updated and it was doing it much better. So it didn't look as interesting. And, and so you have that sort of paradox of progress thing that this technology, which is evolving very fast, actually sometimes doesn't produce results that are more what you want. And I think there's a bit of that going on with AI at the moment, where for whatever reason, I think, you know, obviously there's a kind of explosion of interest in AI recently, partly because of some unexpected breakthroughs. You know, no one really knows what's going to happen next with AI because things tend to happen by accident when you're trying to figure out something else. But obviously in the last sort of year or two, there's been some amazing stuff, tools for artists. I mean, assuming this comes from the fact that visual AI is being, you know, there's a big prize to sort of solve the visual problems of the self-driving cars. Yeah, one of the things that's holding up the autonomous cars is the fact that they don't know how to read the road ahead of you or know the difference between what's a plastic bag blowing into the street or a fire hydrant or a small child running in front of you, which we know when we're looking, but it's quite an important decision for the car to get right, whether to slam the brakes on or not. And yeah, everything about you know how the cars navigate is billions are being poured into this with the result that I don't think they're much nearer to solving it yet. But the accidental byproduct is there's lots of interesting visual AI tools now coming out, which have been on the models that have been very expensively trained for other purposes. And then also the labeling's got better on the sort of data sets so that this thing will be able to use mid-journey in those things to plug in a few keywords and have images thrown out incredibly quickly is an interesting thing. My fear is we'll see a kind of a torrent of quite weak and unimaginative AI art in the coming years, because I think the danger of like what it's good at is, you know, if you're trying to think up an idea and get some visual ideas, storyboard something, whether it's for you know painting in my case, or if you're making a movie or doing a book or whatever, because it kind of throws out these often slightly surreal combinations of uh, unexpected combinations of content and styles. 
which are perhaps vaguely along the lines of what you were thinking, but are not exactly it. And you think, oh, wow, I wouldn't have thought of that. That's kind of interesting. But it's a remix of existing images. I mean, I'm not an expert in AI at all, but we've tried it a few times over the years. I've had people working in the studio occasionally sort of trying to train models to see if you could do portraits in that way. And they've never been any good. Although recently, the most recent one we tried, it started to get my style a bit better. But what it couldn't do was get the subject of the portrait to look anything like that. I'm sure that'll go on getting better, but I'm not convinced that it's yet at a stage where it's going to invent a new genre of art other than a sort of neo-surrealism, which I think we're going to see a lot of because it's very easy to do whether you're an artist or not. So that's my really sort of quick and sort of slightly sort of lazy take on it. There's a general sort of worries about AI, you know, and I'm not talking about sort of robots taking over the world. I think it's more about how I think it'll sort of just gradually, subtly affect our behavior. And one of the dangers is I think we get a bit risk averse and we get less good at making decisions for ourselves because there'll be increasingly suggestions based on, you know, vast amounts of data and pattern recognition that will just like you use it without even being aware, probably when the suggestions we get for you read that book, so you might like this one or you listen to that music and therefore you might like these ones. And it's not always right, but sometimes it's good enough and interesting enough and finds things that would otherwise have taken you a long time to find that you kind of go with it. And so you get a bit lazier, you start to lose the skills of going and hunting for the things yourself. And if you extrapolate that out to all the other areas it'll come into in the next few years, you may find in the morning, it's telling you yeah, well, yeah, wear that color shirt, you're going to have a better day than if you wear that one. And it's a you know, 80% chance or whatever. And there'd be times when you know you want to overrule it. But a lot of the time you might think, well, it was right about it last time, you know, I'll just go with it. I mean, that's a slightly sort of frivolous example, but I think you see the point. I think there's all kinds of unforeseen consequences of these things. In the short term, I'm sure it'll be a fun tool for artists and non-artists, and it'll make it much easier to storyboard things. And we'll soon be able to sort of dictate a sort of animation or even a movie in real time. But it won't be the same as having to come up with the ideas yourself. And I hope we don't lose the ability, the imagination of having to think things up from scratch. Indeed, and nothing will replace that one-on-one -on -one that you have in your studio. As a student at the London School of Economics interested in the philosophy of perception, I am fascinated by the way Jonathan Yeo represents figures alternately emerging from and dissolving into the materiality of his portraits. It reminds me of walking down the street and catching faces and glimpses, surfacing into view just as they recede like a game of peekaboo. Nowadays, with increasingly sophisticated photographic tools at our disposal, we have become accustomed to a detached God's eye view of our perceptual landscapes. The camera, the microscope, snaps subjects and objects into static totalities of congruent features that we can instantly identify as tables or chairs or plant cells. And yet, this is not how perception actually operates. As philosopher Merleau-Ponty indicates, perception is a temporal activity, one by which we gradually group together a set of properties into something meaningfully recognizable. When we first see it, a table is not a table all at once, but becomes itself as we perceptually engage with it. Unlike the cameras and microscopes that reduce perception's peekaboo temporality to a shutter frame, Yo's portraits lay out the texture of each moment spent with the subject. We have, through them, not just an abstract schematization of seeing from nowhere, a photograph merely gesturing to the presence of a cameraman or lab technician, but the record of an intimate encounter between two people, a picture co-constituted by portrait painter and portrait sitter confronting us as a composite of shared moments over time. And still, in the finished portrait, you never get the sense of absolute closure, nor the sense of a subject emerging fully and completely into view. Instead, Yo's work depicts a perceptual becoming left open-ended, 
inviting us as viewers to insert ourselves into the painter-sitter dynamic and participate in the creative process. In his portraits of Cara Delevingne and Helena Bonham Carter, this aspect of Yo's paintings brings to mind the intersubjective quality of celebrity, the ways we collectively participate in the production of public figures. And at the same time, it seems to mirror our own interdependence as human beings that create, change, and inform each other's identities. Seeing ourselves caught up in this give and take, our ideological divides, our virtual silos, start to feel like they only artificially posit separations between us. Ultimately, through his portraits, Yo is not just teaching us how to paint, but how to see. Signaling his own presence in the studio, he shows us that there is no such thing as a view without a viewer. Nor do these camera-type views capture things as they really are. Instead, rooted in our subjective outlooks upon the world, we become for each other along the temporal continuum of perception. As we see and are seen, remember and are remembered, we are likewise creating and created. The thin boundary that separates us and world is only skin deep. Beyond it and before it lies a creative process without end. And now, back to the interview. I know you've also ventured into creating the studio app where visitors can virtually visit your studio and go behind the scenes and these different things. But having that one-on-one, -on -one, the space in the room, that oxygen, it seems like, you know, with AI, it sucks all the oxygen and everything is data points. You've definitely done really interesting things. I want to say also, you kind of touched on it, but what's it like to make painted sculpture? I mean, you know, paint in the air and have that translated into sculpture. I think I'm a frustrated sculptor, basically. I think I've always liked the idea of it, but again, haven't had the sort of time to learn it formally or the resources to sort of to dabble in it. But I think it goes back to that thing of what, what a portrait, the game of portrait painting or any kind of two-dimensional depiction is playing is, you know, you know it's a three-dimensional subject. And so the lighting, it's only things that you're using other proxies to communicate the three dimensions, whether it's light and shade or difference of color values to suggest reflections and volume and that sort of thing. And I think working in three dimensions, you know, you're bypassing some of that, but it opens up a lot more potential. Yeah, you know, the fact that the image is changing according to your position and proximity and all that sort of thing. And so for me, the joy of it was that, yeah, you could suddenly, you didn't have to worry about how you were going to make it or whether something was going to fall down or whether it was going to be structurally coherent or any of that. You literally just put marks as if you're drawing in a sketchbook in the air and then they would stay in place and you could then change your position. And it was like literally being able to sort of sketch a three-dimensional solid thing. It was funny. That wasn't what the software was being designed to do. It was to be played with within the confines of virtual reality. But I think for me, it seemed obvious that this would be a, actually a really interesting tool that you could develop as a sort of way of prototyping and making actual physical things, whether it's sculpture or furniture or buildings or whatever. And I think some architects are using it to some extent, not necessarily just like freehand things, but certainly as a way you could just like draw a building, the scale of a, like a doll's house on the table in front of you, and then scale it up and see what it'd be like, actually, if it was 200 feet tall and you're inside it, or you're looking from the view from the top. I think the sort of the way you can bend the rules of what can and can't be made physically using these virtual tools is really exciting. And so the point of the sculpture was to demonstrate that potential. And I don't think I did it very well because I assumed that then lots of other artists would sort of follow and start using it straight away. And I don't know if any have, but I think it may be also because the other gear you need is a bit of cumbersome and it may just happen gradually in the coming years. And I'm sure people will do much more exciting things than I did. But I think that will be a way things are made more in the future. And I think that this century will be much more three-dimensional one, whereas the 20th century was a two-dimensional one. We are able to communicate far more through movies and TV and then latterly internet and print and everything else. But being able to sort of communicate and share things in three dimensions 
will be, I think, a much bigger feature of the coming decades. And I think being able to almost walk in and almost to see this sculpture process helps us appreciate just the building blocks of life, kind of puts things in perspective. Like you're going beyond the surface with your paintings and also with your surgery paintings, the skin deep paintings. And then this being able to understand how things are made for someone who's very intuitive, does that give you a kind of a greater appreciation or a spiritual sense of connection with your artworks? Yes, I think your kind of relationship with your artworks it sort of develops over time, over the time you spend making it. And I think, again, that's something which, you know, differentiates these things from a photograph or a three-dimensional sense of sort of like, you know, momentary capture, because they're not literal. It's not the literality of the camera or the 3D scanner. It's something that's made over time. And so when you're looking at a painting, there's this nice sort of little paradox, which is you're looking at a, a static two-dimensional object. But actually, you've made it over time. It wasn't that a single moment. You know, when you're working literally on one part of the canvas was a different hour or even a different week to when you're working on another part. And also the subject, which is a three-dimensional real-world subject, was there moving, doing something differently at different times, might have been you know, looking quite different on a different day. And so you actually demonstrably have the passage of time elapsing across the canvas, just as this relationship developed. and you're feelings about the subject and about the work has, has developed as well. So you've got this sort of chart of multiple things in a portrait. And I think that's what was nice about the sculpture is that, you know, by making it over time, even though it doesn't take any longer than, a, you know, it was, I think, a few hours work really doing the main drawing, but you've been making decisions at each part of the process. And those are then documented and perhaps even more metaphorically sort of locked in space for all of time because you then cast it in bronze which is quite difficult to erase and so I think that's a nice way of looking at it and certainly I think anything that you've taken time over and probably at some point you know had a crisis of confidence on or agonized over or been unsure about how to solve certain problems you know it's there in the work and I think that's a lovely thing and that's why I tend to also often leave some of my mistakes showing in the pictures because I think that amplifies that sense of time passing and things changing. Indeed, I feel going back to your paintings, I imagine people looking at them a hundred years hence, because there's not many cues with fashion, there's almost an absence of fashion that I feel that there's not this barrier and I feel that they could enter into your works more easier than the when you see a lot of historical portraits. It's a really interesting point that, and I kind of constantly come back to that and question it. And it's not a, a kind of a rule that I don't include that sort of thing, but I try not to if people aren't telling a story that's relevant to them with what they're wearing, I, as you say, I tend to leave things just suggested because I think it can be a big distraction. And I think that's not to say that, you know, actually looking at work from, you know, 50 or 100 years ago, it doesn't give it added interest and sort of context through those sorts of fashions because then we've learned that they are associated with a particular era and perhaps other activities and, you know, cultural phenomena. But I think that you're right that I think you wanted to be doing something that's very specific to the, that person at that time, but also for it to be sort of eternal, you know, to be have a timeless quality. And I think that's where certainly what people are wearing can be one of the you know, most distracting aspects if you kind of, if you put too much of that in. But it's difficult. I never know if I've got that right. It's one of the things where I kind of often sort of agonize and wonder afterwards how different it would have been if it had been more obviously a particular fashion or a particular time. So given what everything you're saying about telling a story through the portrait, I'm really fascinated about specifically your portrait of Jonathan Ive. 
where you depict him taking a selfie through the selfie camera. And given everything that you've mentioned previously about photography and technology more generally, I was just wondering what was the mm. thought or process behind this painting? So yes, Johnny, you've got someone who being the person who was designed the iPhone was a, yeah, very interested in photography himself. I got interested in several little narratives there, and I'm not sure if I was trying to do too much with it and it kind of got a bit convoluted. But basically, I guess the two main strands are the fact that, yeah, on the one hand, this relationship between painting and photography, as we've touched on, it has been a complicated one for painters ever since the birth of photography, because it fundamentally changed the painter's job from being, you know, the only person who could record what something looked like visually to suddenly being seen as a more frivolous and less kind of forensic and less reliable one than the camera. And therefore the relationship and then artists, you know, whether they use photography or not, uh, you know, people can be very dogmatic either way you should or you shouldn't. And whether it's a sort of a useful tool or a cheat or somehow something to be sort of acknowledged or not. Anyway, so there's that sort of bit of the thing, obviously. But then with Johnny, you've got someone who, A, has been very obviously instrumental in the sort of process of putting cameras in more people's hands. I think the fact that we've all become uh, probably 30 years ago, we'd have a camera, but we'd use it on holiday and use it on someone's birthday and probably forget about it the rest of the time. And when you get your photos back from the developers, you can't really remember why some pictures are better than others. Fast forward a few years and we're all taking photos every day and learning really fast how to compose images and how to read images and what people would have been doing and why they've cropped it in a certain way. All these things, which were kind of probably the preserve of artists, art historians in the past, are suddenly things that kids are thinking about because it's the way they communicate with each other. So I think that shift's interesting. And, you know, Johnny is obviously essential to the decisions about doing that and how to use it and designing the camera that's in, in billions of people's pockets. He mentioned to me one day, we were talking about doing a portrait, various people wanted portraits of him. He's quite self-effacing and, you know, doesn't really want to be the center of attention. So I was like, well, I'm not sure I want to really have a big portrait of me. And then he mentioned this thing that when I was doing those self-portraits, that he'd been fascinated by self-portraiture as a kid, so much so that when he was you know, doing his industrial design degree, he wrote his thesis on artist self-portraits. And I just thought that was such a lovely parallel that, you know, you've got this sort of person who's always been obsessed with them, gone into another area and accidentally or not ended up being the person who's indirectly responsible for probably more self-portrait images being made every day than had probably ever been made at the point at which he did his thesis. Anyway, so I was just trying to sort of play with this in multiple stories. And then the fact that yeah, he didn't really want to be in it, so he's hiding behind his phone, but then, of course, amplifying his face by doing so. This sort of like the circle in the square is the sort of lens versus the canvas. Yeah, I was having too much fun with all the kind of overlapping narratives and maybe made the picture too convoluted. But I think at the end of the day, people can see what's going on. Everyone recognizes the phone and you can see what he's doing. It was one of those things where you can see there's an interesting story to be told. And then it's how do you do it and have this something simple enough that people can skip the sort of top line idea, but hopefully leave enough clues that there's another layer to it if people look at it and think about it a little bit longer. So that's fascinating. Given that Jonathan Ives' background was in Apple design and also what you were mentioning previously about the salience of the face in perception. And when we walk and we see somebody's face, and that is what draws our attention. But the famous face or the, a person's public image has this kind of double salience to it, especially salient to us in our public imagination. So how do you manage the question of viewership or the people who are going to be interacting with these portraits and also bringing out the intimacy that you were discussing previously? Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point. 
I think, and it's a complicated one. I mean, I think you have a different relationship with a portrait if you know something about the someone that's being portrayed already rather than seeing it cold, as it were. Which is not to say that like portraits of you know, unfamiliar faces, especially historical ones, are really interesting things. But you, you have more to play with as an artist if the subject is recognizable. Because you can, I mean, apart from anything else, you can either reaffirm or contradict people's preconceptions. Or what very often happens is what you expect, you know, especially if it's someone who's very well known, who comes in and you haven't met them before. You know, sometimes people are exactly who you, you expect them to be, you know, the lovely sort of Jamie Oliver and you know, all kinds of people who are exactly their public persona is a completely honest and transparent one. But almost always people, there tends to be a mix. And, and sometimes you get the opposite. The person that turns up is very different from who you expected. But for the most part, there's a bit of both. And so I think portraits tend to get more interesting. Yeah, you want complexity. You want to feel like there's a bit of a tension between the good and bad in someone, the two contrasting sides of their personality, or that the real... But with the Maestro series, it's a different thing in a, in a way, but with the Maestro series, I painted Giancarlo Esposito, you know, a lovely actor from Breaking Bad, and he's very good at playing baddies in lots of films. And so without really thinking about it, I kind of expected him to be something vaguely like the characters he plays. And of course, he's completely different, the loveliest sweetest you know kind of you know, most fun company and complete opposite of the kind of characters he mostly plays and so that's fun as well but it kind of also presents a bit of a challenge because then you know if you do him exactly as he is then people look at it and go well that's not, i don't think he looks like that but then if you portray him as the sort of you know the kind of what he's on screen or you're missing out on this other whole other thing which is you know the contrast with the, the sort of um juxtaposition of the sort of the two perceptions I mean, in the end, I slightly dodged it on the series by doing two versions. The first one was him, you know, being him. And then I did a second one where it was a bit more posed and I think still him, but he was looking a bit more like he looks in, you know, on screen because I was slightly demonstrating two different approaches. But I think it's a really interesting area and uh, there's a lot to be said about it and our relationship with people we don't know, but make assumptions about. So I think I could probably wang on about that for hours. I think I probably did a bit in the series. You do capture that duality. And I think, you know, that quiet power as well that we come to expect from him. But I think it's just something about the silence of him. Why is silence sometimes unsettling, intimidating? Yeah, exactly. And I think and it may be that was made him interesting as a portrait subject in a way, because silence, when people aren't communicating, you're then forced to use, you know, to pick up the nonverbal communication clues about what's going on. Why is he going quiet? And that's when you're actually you know, trying to read the face and the body language and the movements and that sort of thing more. And particularly if they're still, because I mean, I always feel that part of the reason I, I like to have people actually sit for me, I don't mind, I'll take photos and stuff as well. But, you know, if you only use photographs, you miss out on this thing of actually, I, th I think people communicate their personality in an involuntary way in the way they move, in the way their face moves, in the way they react to things, and the way they say things. And so if you only use still images, you miss out on that. But as you say, when someone's gone quiet and, and they're not doing very much, you start to really tune into the sort of micro expressions and any clues you can pick up on. So I think it's a good example of something where it makes that connection with what you're doing with a portrait image. This intuitive intelligence that you establish with your subjects, I was wondering if you had inspiration from the natural world. I see the subtext in their body language that might be like what you've observed from uh, non-human animals. I mean, I think that it's not something I'm very good at, but I think there are artists who tune into animals very brilliantly, at least as well as others do people. You know, I'm thinking Picasso was very good at caricaturing animals, actually. He got their movement, 
And Lucian Freud, I mean, I think Lucian actually liked his animals better than people. His pictures of dogs and horses are much more sympathetic than his portraits of other people, for most part. I think it's hard to sort of put a finger on where they sort of, I, mean, I, I love animals, I have animals. I think that these things are all part of what informs a lot of the decisions you make, but also you've got to be also looking at non-human subjects to know what it is that makes someone human. And I think you mentioned this environmental stuff. I mean, I just been spending a lot of time with David Attenborough because I've been doing a portrait of him and I've got a lot of friends in that world. And, you know, this sort of, well, I mean, it's a whole bigger subject, but this sort of, the kind of, there's something weird about our psychology as humans that we almost all see that there's a massive problem and have known this for years, really. And yet, you know, think that it's okay not to be doing more about it. And it's utterly baffling for people who are scientific minded like him. That you know, we're not, not seeing a problem in dealing with it. You know, whether it's the old sort of psychology experiments with this, sometimes compared to where the sort of students are doing an exam, there's smoke coming through the door, and because no one else is getting up and panicking, then people carry on. It does feel a bit like that. And so, I mean, I think that's a slightly sort of darker aspect of the human psychology, but it's, yeah, that's undoubtedly going to be the dominant one, you know, in the coming years. Yes, we're always seeing the immediate, but I think that's what your paintings help us imagine into the deep arc of time and to slow our, our minds. You know, as you reflect on the future education and the importance of the arts, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I'm actually quite optimistic about education. I mean, I've been sort of a bit negative about some aspects of technology, but I think the education potentially will get better. I think you'll be able to make you know, thinking about how I taught things at school and how reliant you were on whether you had a good or bad teacher for certain subjects. And that would completely just dictate whether you wanted to, you know, kind of go into that area or not. Maybe I'm lucky that I had some bad teachers in other areas and I quite like the art teacher. But I, I think the education is going to get much better for multiple reasons. I think you'll have tailored learning. You'll have much more interactive and in sort of involving experiences. You'll have, you know, people kind of, yes, teaching. And I think there'll be so many, it's a whole nother subject. But I'm, I'm optimistic about that. I think the other area that's interesting, and I've got kids myself, and you know, they're sort of torn between sort of arts and sciences. And when I was growing up, you know, you had to do one or the other. And I think that th at the moment, that's shifting quite a lot. And people are realizing, and it's only my own experiences, you know, as a sort of non-technologist bumbling into this tech world, asking stupid questions and, you know, not really understanding what things are for, so trying to use them for the wrong thing and accidentally coming up with something that's new and unexpected, which is a sort of version, I think, of what, how a lot of things get invented in the sort of technology world. But I think there'll be more traffic between sort of technology and the arts. And I think we, you know, the tech world needs some more creative-minded people and less literal people, but who have a bit of an understanding of how, how things work and vice versa. I think that there's a lot of room for people with sort of like bringing more science and engineering and other sort of skills into the art world to sort of free us up from this relatively niche media and genre that we have at the moment. And I think both will happen. I think it's exciting. So if anyone's you know, listening to this, wondering what to do with their lives and whether to go one way or the other, I'd say whatever way you go, don't totally give up on the other one. Indeed. An example of your own life, you've opened yourself to all this interdisciplinary curiosity. So thank you, Jonathan Yeo, for sharing your creative journey, for the sensitivity of your art that invites us to reflect on the importance of connection, intuitive intelligence, the nature of time and perception, consciousness, and the human condition. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you both. And thank you, Mia, for putting that so beautifully. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for those very thought-provoking questions. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. 
This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Virginia Moschetti with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producers on this episode were Sophie Garnier and Virginia Moschetti. The creative process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Katie Foster. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anatolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.